This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. Jamil Jaffer is the executive director of the National Security Institute and an assistant professor of law at George Mason University. Klon Kitchen is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on the intersection of national security and defense technologies. Jamil and Klon each spend extensive time working in the executive branch and in Congress on national security issues. They join us today to talk about a variety of national security issues, most importantly, the role of technology in national security. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Klan, Jamil, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you both on the show. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, Michael. You're welcome. So before we get into our conversation, let me just say that one of the issues that we'll talk about today is government regulation of big tech companies. And I just want our listeners to know that I personally, um, I'm a member of the National Security Advisory Board for an advocacy group called the American Edge Project, which is funded in part by Facebook. Folks should also know that I signed an open letter with several other former national security officials in April that called for review by congressional committees with national security jurisdiction of any regulatory bills related to tech companies. I just wanted to provide my listeners with full transparency into uh, into my own views and what I've been doing on some of these issues. So I just wanted to get that out there. 
But guys, before we get to discussions of big tech, I wanted to ask about some other issues that I know that one or both of you follow. And Jimmy, I'll maybe start with you. You've been been critical of the Biden administration for not providing more support to the Ukrainians, uh, given what's kind of transpired over the last few weeks in terms of the amount of weapons flowing in there. I wonder if you still feel that way, if you still feel we should be doing more, and if so, what? Well, Michael, thanks for the uh, question. And you're exactly right. I I have been critical uh, that we didn't do enough early on when it came to this fight that the Ukrainians have have encountered against the Russians, uh, the illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine. And my essential contention is that had we done all the things that we're doing today, the, the billions of dollars of weapons that we're pouring in, the tremendous amount of intelligence sharing that we're, that we're engaging in now with the Ukrainians, uh, really empowering them to uh, really succeed even further than that with what they've done thus far with respect to the Russians, we may have had a chance of actually deterring this invasion. And I think the challenge has been consistently with respect to U.S. behavior, not just in Ukraine, but particularly Ukraine's a good example of it, where our adversaries don't know what our, where our red lines are, what we're going to do to effectuate our policies, how far we're willing to go. You know, if you had viewed the, uh, the Russian view of the Biden administration's perspective when it came into this conflict, right, the essential position was, we're going to sanction you, and that'll be about it. And yeah, we'll support the Ukrainians, but, you know, we'll see how that goes. And it wasn't clear, I think, to the Russians, they certainly didn't understand how challenged their own military would be, how aggressive and how, how tough the, Euro- the Ukrainians would ultimately be. But they also didn't realize, in part because we didn't make clear to them, how much effort we were willing to put in, how much, how much weaponry we were willing to put in the, uh, the conflict. And so I definitely laud the Biden administration for having done a much better job than I think anybody expected on sanctions, going much broader and deeper than anybody expected with the swift sanctions and the like. I also think that they've gone a lot further than anybody expected they would on weaponry with the tremendous amount of javelins and, and stingers and now howitzers that were pouring into that fight. That being said, we're still not at the point where the Russians are willing to give up right? Or willing to take a loss or willing to withdraw some of their forces. And so the question becomes, how much more money are we going to pour in? How much more effort are we going to pour in? Would we not have been better off had we simply done a lot of this ahead of time and messaged it and press prevented this invasion altogether? Klan, what are your thoughts on that question? Your thoughts on Russia, Ukraine? Yeah. So I think while I would share a lot of Jamil's kind of criticism about how slow we were in the beginning, I'm also somewhat understanding as to why that was the case, right? I mean, when, when these things are developing, the leadership is trying to figure out what's the reality on the ground. We don't always have a very clear picture on that, especially when it comes to actual intentions. You're trying to figure out what is Putin actually trying to do? How much of this is a bluff? How much of this is, you know, really pre-deployment preparations? And I, you know, I think all three of us have been in, in the Oval Office at, at times when these conversations were going on, and you realize that every person who comes in is highly confident in their assessment, or at least sounds highly confident, and they're all telling you different things. And one of the reasons why the president gets paid the big bucks is to kind of decipher all that. And so this is a hard call. I think the biggest level of criticism that I would level is I think we were slow. I think my speculation, I don't know this, but my speculation is that a lot of the lawyers were overly cautious in terms of what intelligence sharing was going to look like, whether that made us a co-belligerent or not. These are these are heavy stake, you know, kind of gambles when we're talking about Russia as a nuclear armed state. So again, I'm somewhat empathetic to that. 
But I do think we were slower than we needed to be. And I think as a demonstration is just how effective we've been once we kind of shook loose those shackles. I mean, at this point, my impression is that intelligence sharing is is very good. I think it has more than proven itself. I think even some of the pre-bunking, the preemptive sharing of, of intelligence assessment, it's about Putin's intentions and capabilities, that kind of thing, that obviously played a helpful role in, in development, all this stuff. You know, we just passed a $40 billion supplemental aid effort to Ukraine. A lot of people who would wear my political jersey, well, I say some, some people who wear my political jersey were, were resisting that and, and criticizing it. I think it was a good move. I'm glad it's gotten passed. And I think where we stand now is um, we've, we've got a potential standoff in the Donbass. I think there's good reason to believe that the Ukrainians might actually be able to dislodge Russia from a huge portion of, of that region and that the worst possible thing we could do is to uh, for the Americans to take our eye off the ball and our foot off the gas and leave the Ukrainians without the equipment and support that they are going to need to finish the job. Because if they can finish the job, they will achieve something that is truly in the strategic interest of the United States without an American soldier having, having been uh, in harm's way. You, know, you guys talked about possibly having been able to deter this, and one of the one of the things that I've thought about is, had we got the intelligence assessment right with regard to how difficult this was going to be for the Russians to carry out and reach their objectives quickly and how tough this fight was going to be, then maybe having put more weapons in there earlier, even before the invasion began, might have actually deterred. Get your reaction to that. I was just going to say, I think that's obviously true. Michael, I, I think one of the challenges is is that it's going to be really hard for the U.S. or any other intelligence community to accurately assess how hard this was going to be for Putin when he himself had a misunderstanding of how effective he was going to be, right? He, he had an assessment of his own capabilities that is proving untrue. And I think that's because there's a lot of fraud and a lot of waste and a lot of graft in the military modernization that they've been going through for the last decade. And so, you know, when, when the other guy doesn't have a clear understanding of his capabilities, I think, it's, I think it's equally as hard, if not more difficult, for us to have that sense. So I've also seen both of you talk about the Iran nuclear deal and whether we, the United States, should re-enter the 2015 agreement, which the Biden administration has, has been so far unsuccessfully trying to do. Klan, let's let's start with you. What's what's the argument against re-entering the deal? First, we've put ourselves into a position where there just aren't a lot of good options in the near term. So the original JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that we negotiated in the um, in the Obama administration, so categorically deconstructed the sanctions regime that was bringing Tehran to the table that we would talk about snapback. You know, if, if, if Iran didn't comply, then we would quickly snap back to what we had before. But that was never really the case because we had so thoroughly deconstructed sanctions regimes and those kinds of things take a lot of effort and time. So we're now in a place where with the demise of JC, JCPOA, we don't have the kind of sanction stick that we had previously when we were first negotiating this. And, and now um, we have an increasingly belligerent and, um, and at least arguably uh, closer to a nuclear capability, uh, Iran. Um, 
I don't think that the JCPOA agreement did half of what it claimed to do, but I am open to trying to come up with some way to uh, more formally constrain the nuclear program. But I think what's in, incredibly important is that the Americans, whether it be the Biden administration or some subsequent administration, that, that we understand that we've actually put ourselves in a more difficult situation than we were originally. And that if you want to get any type of, of um, agreement through Congress, it's going to have to be a, a lot more than just a bunch of promises. There's going to have to be some very serious verification in place, uh, or I just don't think it will, I don't think it will last. Jamil? Yeah, no, uh, Michael, I think that's, I think Klan is exactly right, which is to say that the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA was a bad deal from the jump, in my view. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't the right approach for the United States. We did not effectively uh, constrain the Iranian nuclear program. Having gotten out of it, the question now becomes with the short amount of time remaining on the original clock, right, and the challenges the original deal had inherent in it, right, does it make sense to get back into it now? I think the answer is clearly no. Do we need something that constrains the Iranian nuclear program as Klan has laid out? Of course we do. But is getting into the current JCPOA back into it of any value to the U.S. at this point? Uh, I, I highly doubt it. I actually think the right approach is to go back to the maximum pressure campaign, reestablish the conditions that brought Iran to the table in the first place. Uh, we were on the verge, I think, of getting to a better agreement when those sanctions were in place. Um, and I think there, I think there is a possibility for a reasonable agreement. The problem is the Iranians see the writing on the wall, which is clearly. The administration is desperate to get back in, just like the Obama administration was desperate to get into the agreement in the first place. They're using that to their advantage. And and as a result, you know, as Klan correctly lays out, we're not in a particularly good position to negotiate from right now. I also wonder, right, with the Iranians watching what's happened between Russia and Ukraine, right, the, the country with nuclear weapons attacks with impunity and the country that gave them up found itself incredibly vulnerable. I wonder what they're learning from that. Any thoughts? Well, that's, exact, that's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly the challenge of our posture in Ukraine, which is that if we're never going to go to war or never going to get into a fight with a country that has nuclear weapons, that tells every country around the world, whether it's North Korea who are trying to get to give up their weapons or Iran is thinking about trying to get them, that you should definitely try to pursue nuclear weapons and never give them up once you have them because we won't get into conflict with you. And of course, that's the wrong message to send. It's the wrong message to send to Russia. It's the wrong message to send to China when it comes to Taiwan. And it's certainly the wrong message to send to nuclear capable or nuclear potential states like Iran. And so we have to be willing to go toe to toe against these nuclear powers and say, look, the use of nuclear weapons is something that has to remain off the table, but it doesn't mean we can't get in a conflict and we can't have a problem with what you're doing and establish a path forward. Unfortunately, that has not been our posture when it comes to the Russians. It doesn't appear to be our posture when it comes to the Chinese in Taiwan. And everyone else around the world is watching that and learning from it. I was just going to add on to that a little bit. I think generally speaking, the sum total of what the Biden administration has done in, in the response to Ukraine is I think it's I think it's pretty good. I think we're navigating a pretty difficult challenge pretty well. Uh, and I have my real differences with this administration, but I, I think looking at the outcomes that we're, we're that we're observing, looking at where we are today, and again, as I said, you know, even with the the recent passage of the of the supplemental funding bill or aid package, I think largely we're we're handling a really tricky situation particularly well. One area where I would align some of my criticism with with uh, Jamil's previous point about nuclear states and how we deal with them. 
I do think we're allowing the rhetorical threat of nuclear violence from Putin to become normalized. One of the things I'm concerned about is, as the Russian military has shown to be increasingly incapable and, and ultimately being hollowed out, I do worry that Vladimir Putin is going to feel the need, even for his own kind of legitimacy and security, to remind the world that he's still dangerous. And there are a couple ways that he can do that. And I, I think by, by just kind of sloughing off and, and kind of laughing off his continued return to nuclear threats, I think that's a real big problem. And I think that the United States should carefully but deliberately kind of turn up the pressure on him every time he does that and almost start treating that type of rhetoric as not quite tantamount but very close to like use like we we cannot get into a place to where if Iran is allowed to go nuclear or if Kim Jong Un in in North Korea we we cannot allow these you know dictatorial regimes to think that it is okay and acceptable to threaten nuclear holocaust every time they, you know, want to get attention. That is fundamentally destabilizing to the to the geopolitical order. And I, I that is something that I would like to see the Biden administration get uh, a little more tight on. So I just want to jump in here for one second, if, if you don't mind, Michael. Sure. Which is, you know, look, I actually think Klan is right about how we need to we need to respond to Russia's nuclear rhetoric. That being said, I think it is very dangerous to take away from our relative success in the Ukraine conflict that we've done the right thing here and that our approach to it from the jump has been the right approach or that our approach to it now has gotten right. I actually think that's completely wrong. I think that, you know, the thousands and thousands of civilian lives that we lost, the millions of refugees that have been caused by this situation all could have been avoided, as we talked about earlier, through deterrence. And the problem is when America looks weak, which we do and have, Afghanistan, our whiff on the Syria red line, our behavior in Ukraine, all our, our current actions towards Taiwan, the China situation, all make us look terribly weak. And that is a situation that causes more danger, more chaos, more dead civilians, more refugees in this world. And so I don't see, while I do agree that the Biden administration is getting to the right place slowly, I actually think that we made the situation much more dangerous. We made it much worse. We made it worse for civilians in Ukraine. And America's strong in the world is a world that is safer for civilians, and safer for our allies. And unfortunately, that is not the world we live in today. And there's no doubt about that, right? But we're talking about a very long period of time here in multiple administrations, I think, you know, making mistakes and not pushing back harder against Russian behavior. I mean, it goes, it goes way back to, goes way back to Georgia, right? Slap on the hand. Goes back to 2014, Ukraine, slap on the hand, right? So this is a, this is a sin owned by many. Do you guys want to react to that? Agreed 100%. That it is, it is a sin owned by many presidents, Republicans and Democrats alike. And it's not just Russia. It's our failure to, to be seen as a strong ally to our allies, a strong friend to our allies, and a capable and willing to engage adversary against our enemies. The world, our adversaries do not believe America is ready to deploy our military, is ready to take the fight to them. And as a result, they are willing to be much more aggressive around the globe. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Jamil and Klon. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. 
Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, guys, let's, let's turn to our main topic, the government's regulation of technology companies. Earlier this year, you both co-authored an op-ed that was titled, The American Innovation and Choice Online Act is a Mistake. For those listeners who don't know, the bill is one of several being considered by Congress that targets a handful of U.S. tech companies for what the bill's supporters argue is anti-competitive behavior. Before we actually get to the op-ed, I'd love to start by asking both of you to briefly explain why U.S. tech innovation is so important to national security. Jamil, you first. Well, look, I think uh, we see the benefits of American tech innovation around the globe. We American companies are dominant, are the dominant players when it comes to nearly every area of technology. Um, And that's no accident. It's because we have some of the brightest minds here. It's because we've created a economic and regulatory environment here in the United States where that type of innovation is able to flourish and expand and grow. And that's a good thing for our country. It's a good thing for our economic security. It's a good thing for our national security. Um, It's a good thing for our values, which are spread throughout the globe by the spread of American technology and innovation and America and people around the globe looking to America as the home of that. Unfortunately, as these companies have succeeded um, and grown, and by the way, it's not just large technology companies that are innovative and successful. America's got an amazing startup culture. The Silicon Valley is now not the only place in America where innovation happens. You see you know, Silicon Valley versions happening in the DC metro area, up in New York, down in Florida. I mean, it is, it is an American phenomenon and one that has benefited us both economically, but also in terms of our national security, because these capabilities that we bring to bear, the technologies that we utilize are not just used in the civilian marketplace, our defense and intelligence community uses them. It's why we're able to empower the Ukrainians in the fight against Russia and maintain that innovation here at a time when China is rapidly rising up to take that, take that mantle of leadership is critical to our long-term national security, particularly in the competition against China. Klein, your thoughts? So I have some principial concerns with, with this piece of legislation and some of the other ones, but on the more substantive issue of, of, of tech and national security, I, I think about it this way, that, that the, the technologies that are going to shape and win future national security concerns are overwhelmingly being developed in the private sector for commercial applications. These are things like artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, quantum computing. These are the things that are going to be the decisive advantages you know, in the next 20 to 30 years. And there's just not going to be a time when the U.S. government out-Googles Google. And one of the reasons why that innovation is being pioneered in the private sector and by the companies that are pioneering it is because it's incredibly resource-intensive, both in terms of attracting and, and leveraging the talent necessary to realize these, these innovations, but then also the actual development of the underlying computer science and, and data acquisition. There's a reason why it's the companies who have figured out a way to operate at scale that are also the same companies who are pioneering these technologies. I'll, I'll just give you an example. Last year, Alphabet Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Intel, and Microsoft alone 
spent a combined $140 billion on research and development, not including acquisitions. That's just pure R&D spend. The Pentagon's R&D budget for the same year was $109 billion. And so when we talk about these six companies being able to outspend the U.S. military, it's precisely because they operate at the scales that they operate. And I really don't like the idea of us cutting ourselves off at the knees because some are looking for what I think is, is a political pound of flesh. In terms of the view that tech innovation is critical to national security, that's not a debate, right? Everybody agrees with that. Is that fair? Well, they do up until a point. Right. I mean, they say yes, but it, it, let me let me be more generous to the critics. So in the past, there was always national security caveats to to some of these concerns, whether it be antitrust or, or, or you know, normal economic engagement. But back, you know, previously, it was less costly. It was easier to make those those caveats because we were talking about essentially a particular kind of jet plane tanks, you know, things that really had these narrow applications. But now what we're talking about, the innovations that really matter, are dual use. They are of equal import to the commercial private side as they are to the U.S. military or the U.S. intelligence community. And that makes these, these kind of calculations and conversations much more complex. And I think a lot, of, a lot of lawmakers are struggling to kind of wrap their head around that at the same time when domestic politics is pushing them in a direction um, that I think is counterproductive. So your joint op-ed. Why did you write it? What did it argue? Klon, perhaps you could go first here. Sure. So it was specifically responding to the American Innovation and Choice Act, which was put together by a, a, a admittedly bipartisan group. And basically, the bill has a narrow focus on a small number of big tech companies with its, its rules that would apply to uh, only companies that have 50 million monthly active users or 100,000 monthly active business users. If they have sales or a market capitalization exceeding $550 billion and are a, quote, critical trading partner for the sale or provision of any product or service offered on or directly related to the online platform. In other words, this is a surgical strike. This is essentially a piece of legislation that is going after a very small group of what the sponsors would call kind of big tech uh, of the few major muscle movements in the text it, 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 of, of the bill, there's an explicit prohibition against privileging a platform's own products and services. There's a mandate that platforms be interoperable with one another, and it makes uh, it illegal for tech companies to discriminate in the application or enforcement of, of their terms of service against a competitor. All of which, on the surface, seem like, okay, yeah, it's kind of, kind of reasonable, but there's a problem. So when we talk about something like preferencing, that's not just shelf space, right? So when you talk about Walmart and grocery stores or you know whomever, there's always concerns about them reserving prime real estate for their products, which by the way they can do and do do, and it's and it's it's legal. But in the in the context of something like Google, Google's threat analysis group, which is their cybersecurity group, which and their rock stars groups. They track more than 270 government-backed bad guys that operate in 50 different countries. And they have issued more than 50,000 warnings about those, uh, those threat actors and, and what they might be trying to do. Now, they use that information that's you know proprietary. That's all being developed in-house. They use that to make Gmail safer proactively. And there's nothing as a Gmail user that I have to do. But the bill's language could possibly make that type of proactive cybersecurity work illegal. 
because they would call that preferencing. They're using proprietary inside data collection to make their product better than you know an alternative. And the law is is opaque in its language, and I think that's you know a, a major problem. Another example, and then I'll let Jamil jump in, is that you know with all of these rules, China's not going to play by them. Foreign tech companies will not be bound by these rules, and that will ultimately hamstring American companies while leaving global competitors with even more agility. On top of that, the interoperability requirements could actually give foreign actors insights into proprietary information, into trade secrets, and to, to other information that could not only make them more you know, dangerous, but also to use that information to outcompete us when, when we're tying our hands behind our back. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jamil. Yeah, you know, Michael, I think Claude makes some really important points. And one of the things that I think we need to think about in the context of, of American antitrust laws is our tradition has always been we treat similar situated entities similarly. And so that means that going after a specific set of companies, right, through legislation is not the American approach. The American approach is, look, we're going to set rules for competition. Everyone's got to abide by them. And that'll allow innovation to flourish. It'll allow smaller companies to come up and succeed and fight with the big ones and ultimately, you know, result in better economic outcomes. What this bill seeks to do, unfortunately, is target a set of companies that they're or that people have political beefs with. In a large part, the real beefs with the technology companies on both the right and the left tend to be more political and less about economics, right? So you talk about conservatives' concerns uh, that they're being that they're being repressed online by big technology companies. You talk about concerns that, that liberals have about the way that tech workers are treated in the gig economy and the displacements it's having uh, on labor forces. Um, and you really find out that what's going on here is not about antitrust or competition at all, what really this is about a political beef with big tech companies being played out through modifications to the antitrust laws that are not in the long term going to support American competitiveness and support small companies rising up and being successful and turning into the big companies. I mean, the whole thing you what you don't want to do is penalize success, right? You want to penalize anti-competitive behavior. And what we don't see here is things directed at actual anti-competitive behavior. We see things directed to address the political concerns through the antitrust laws. It's the wrong way to do antitrust. It's not the American tradition. And it's something that, that conservatives and liberals alike who believe in real American competition should oppose. I was just going to add to that, that 
one of the important points to make on this is, you know, if you read what Jamil and I have written together, if you read the letter that you referenced that uh, earlier, Michael, that, that you signed, the national security professionals who are engaging on this topic are never arguing that these companies should be immune from antitrust law or that they are somehow above accountability because they have national security equities. Everybody is simply saying, look, if they have actually violated the law, then fine, hold them accountable. But let's not start rewriting law, especially in a way like, like Jamil was just explaining, that is kind of divorced from principle and that seeks only to kind of penalize and exert a political cost on, um, on, on any one sector of, of, the, uh, of the American economy. Yeah, just to kind of make that point clear, I, no one that I know of is arguing that, that they should be immune. Instead, we're saying, let's not recklessly and wantonly go about, you know, breaking apart, you know, 10% of our, of our national GDP. You know, going back to what Jamil said about what's really driving this is politics, which I agree with. It's striking, right, that the Chinese government is taking action against its own tech sector, right, for largely political reasons. So there's, there's some similarities going on here. I mean, that's exactly right. And, and that's something we should, that's not a model we should emulate, right? You know, recently there was an article in the New York Times that suggested that America was behind the curve because the Europeans have done a great job regulating technology in a variety of ways through their antitrust laws, through uh, privacy laws and the like. And I would argue that if you look at uh, European tech innovation and American tech innovation and European economic results and American economic results and European national security and American national security, the story is really clear. We are not behind. The fact that the Europeans have engaged in this aggressive uh, approach to regulating technology in their own economies and, and the Chinese are doing the same, those are not things we ought to model. Those are things that make America special. The fact that we've created an environment in which technology can rapidly be innovated, can rapidly move. And by the way, this idea somehow that startups aren't successful in America today uh, because the big tech is too powerful. I mean, that's ridiculous. If you look at the startup economy today and the billions and billions of dollars being poured into venture capital firms and Series A and Series B companies, I just came out of a Series A and Series B company that went uh, that went through the SPAC process. It is the startup economy is strong and vibrant in America. We don't need to change the rules of the game that have worked so successfully for us to address political problems. We had to address politics through politics and not through changing the core antitrust laws that are at the core of our economic security, particularly as we get in this competition with China. So tech regulation, you guys know that tech regulation is just one issue on Congress's tech agenda. It's also in the process of reconciling the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which in its current form includes about $50 billion or so through the CHIPS Act to fund homegrown semiconductor manufacturing. I think the House has its own version of a China competitiveness bill. But, you know, one of the things that strikes me here and just get your reaction to this is that there's a contradiction between those kind of bills, right, which are trying to actually push U.S. tech forward and the tech regulation bills, which are which would actually hold it back. Do you share that sense? Certainly. No, I mean, it's it's one of these things where the national security imperatives um, have become crystal clear to lawmakers because they've been made crystal clear by, by national security professionals that, you know, things like semiconductor manufacturing cannot be as centralized and, frankly, vulnerable to Chinese aggression as, as it has become. 
uh, and so we have to start acting. And, and you know, the legislation that you mentioned is is one of the responses to that. Simultaneously, as as both Jamil and I have commented on, there are domestic political currents that are pushing lawmakers in a different direction. We have this conflict where the the Congress, and this isn't surprising, this isn't certainly the first time that Congress has done this, where it's speaking out of both sides of its mouth. One of the reasons why both of these bills are having difficulties moving through the Congress, in one case I'm very pleased with that, in another case I'm, I'm less pleased, is precisely because of this contradiction is because lawmakers have pursued each of these things individually thinking like, okay, let's get the domestic side, let's go after these guys. But then as they pursue that that effort, they're being constantly reminded by people whose job it is to to defend the nation, hey, you're killing us. If, if we do this, this has real-world implications and would prevent us from doing... For example, it's arguable that a lot of what the companies have done in the wake of Ukraine in terms of how Facebook or Microsoft or Google have protected users both in the United States and externally from cybersecurity threats emanating or around the conflict in Ukraine, some of that activity may have been illegal if some of these laws would have been passed. And lawmakers, you know, can be forgiven in some degree for not understanding all of the implications. But that's why the letters like you mentioned have been, you know, pouring forth that before we pass any of this legislation, there should be a basic national security implications review. And that to me just seems like good governance. Jamil, how have the supporters of tech regulation responded to the national security argument? You know, they've largely dismissed it, Michael, and they've said, look, this is just another example of big tech lobbying which of course it isn't. If you look at the kind of folks that are signing these letters, these are not people who are in the tank for a particular company or set of companies. These are national security professionals who have been around in a long time who say, look, we see the threat on the horizon. We see China rising up. We see it using its capabilities to steal intellectual property in the United States, to gain economic power, to gain influence in the world. Um, and we need to respond to that as a nation. The problem, of course, is exactly as Klon has laid out, which is that Congress is speaking out both sides of its mouth, right? On one hand, it really cares about protecting American supply chains and getting American innovation back here. On the other hand, we're going to punish American innovation when we don't like how it behaves politically. And those two are completely irreconcilable when it comes to how we ought to deal with the larger scale conflict in the world, which is China. All too often, we look internally and debate and fight amongst one another about what's going on inside the United States and miss what's happening outside, which is that China is rising up aggressively. They have they are single focused on how to pass the United States, exceed us when it comes to technological innovation, exceed us when it comes to our capabilities in the world and our influence in the world. And we're lost in this fight about big tech and politics rather than saying, I on the prize, America needs to remain strong in the world. That's best empowered by, by empowering American innovation here. Yes, onshoring, reshoring, ally shoring, but also not killing our most productive sectors with overregulation, particularly overregulation that's targeted at a small set of companies and not writ large, uh, trying to set the right basis for competition. Okay, guys, so we have, we have one minute left. Let me ask you one question, 30 seconds each. I know it's a tough question to do in 30 seconds. What do you think the ultimate outcome will be in the U.S.-China tech race? Klon, you first. I still have high confidence in our ability to outcompete, out-innovate China. I think she has taken some actions that are going to hurt his tech industry. And the big question is, is as he begins feeling that pain, 
will he double down on it and has he does he believe his own his own marketing or will he be more pragmatic and realize he needs to let that industry thrive i think in either case china becomes more dangerous and i feel ultimately confident however that the united states can and still will respond jamil yeah i agree with Claude. i think i i have a lot of faith in america's ability to innovate and accelerate we just have to get out of our own way we have to understand that we are and have been for 200 years the most successful and innovative country the world's ever seen. And as a result, we need to double down on things that have made us successful in that regard, which means leading around the world, having a strong military, a strong intelligence community with a healthy respect for privacy and civil liberties and preserving American capitalism and innovation and allowing that to flourish and not killing it with overregulation the way the Europeans have and the way the Chinese would. Klan, Jamil, thank you so much for joining us today. We could have kept this conversation going for some time, but uh, thank you for taking the time. Great to be here. Thanks, Howard. Thanks, Michael. That was Klon Kitchen and Jamil Jaffer. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.